This is Demetrius Booth, known as the Lighthouse, constantly shining light into darkness, and you are listening to the Shadows Podcast. I want to welcome everybody back to another episode of the Shadows Podcast. I'm your host, Trip Bodenheimer, and this week I am excited because I have with me Dr. James Onadi. Did I say last name right? Yeah, Onadi is good. Yep. Okay. And what what do you prefer for me to to call you on here? Is it Dr. Um, Onadi? Like I wear many hats, but I'll go by Jimmy. What is your exact job title? All right. So my my one job title is uh, associate professor in the College of Medicine in the School of Health and Rehabilitation Sciences. Um, I am the division director of the athletic training education program at and and we're supposed to say this at the Ohio State University. Okay, that's a long signature block on your emails. I bet. Oh, yeah, yeah. That's and that's (laughs) my day job. My my night job is a variety of different things. I've been uh, a baseball coach for 30 some years. Um, and I just launched a, a new company. So I, I'm a kind of mindset uh, coach for a lot of uh, teenagers. So, okay. And yeah, I definitely want to unpack that uh, as well. And let's get started here by asking you some rapid fire questions. Sure. First, book recommendation. Book recommendations. I have three. First one is Range by David Epstein. Um, I, I think it's phenomenal. It kind of defines who I am, a, a, a T versus an I. Um, so that's my, my, my I have three go-tos. Um, the second one is uh, Victor Frankl's uh, the, the Man's Search for uh, Meaning of Life. Um, I think it's a great story mm-hmm. about resiliency. And then my third one is The Last Lecture by Randy Pausch, who was a professor um, who, uh, who passed away from uh, cancer some uh, actually probably about 15 years ago now. Yeah. Uh, great book, but those three and then any Louis L'Amour book. So I am a huge Louis L'Amour Westerns um, trying to gather all 89 of his books. Uh, so that's uh, it's an escape for me is thinking I'm going on a Western uh, back in the, <laughs> in the 1800s. So where are you at with your count with those? Um, I, I just started, you know, I'm, I'm reading, rereading. I'm in the twenties right now. Okay. Uh, and I had a whole collection of leather bound books and I can't locate them. So uh, I must, I, somewhere in a move, something happened. So, yeah. Okay. Uh, bucket list place to travel that you haven't been to yet. A bucket list place to travel. You know, I'm not a, I'm a homebody kind of person. So it's not, um, you know, I, I don't know. It's kind of weird, you know. So I've been to Monaco, I've been to South Korea, Poland, so on and so forth, um, and I've been to a lot of different, you know, states in the United States. Um, I, there is no, uh, I guess, a really, really nice beach somewhere uh, would be okay. my bucket list, and I, I don't have one in particular, but something with crystal, you know, clear water, uh, no seaweed all over the place, and just you know, perfect beach. So okay, so take like Myrtle Beach off that list. <laughs> what about favorite movie favorite movie uh you know i could go through all the uh, every rocky movie um all right it's gonna be a good episode every, yeah I, I i every rocky movie would be uh every 
pretty much baseball movie, you know, Field of Dreams. Uh, I still cry at the end. My boys still make fun of me. Um, you know, so th those are those are kind of the ones that hit home for me. Do you like the the comedy ones like Charlie Sheen, like Major League? Yeah, I like those a little bit. Um, but I, I really like the ones that kind of tell a story and uh, and have a little bit of, uh, you know, really good baseball in it. You know, so like Bull Durham is my favorite one. Good for, meaning to them. Yeah, to I, I like some meaning and some things that people just don't get about baseball. Like I'm a uh, for me, it's just a sport that always resonated to me um, yeah. about like, I don't know, life in general. Um, it was the place where I first found comfort and uh, it, it, it brought out kind of this other person in me from a self-confidence standpoint. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I always kind of go back. So I'm always very at home on a baseball field. Okay. I found myself watching a lot more of the uh, 30 for thirties. You ever watch those? Yeah. 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 I like those. I like the, you know, the backstories. I like the real stories. Um, yeah. You know, those are kind of fun for me. So get a little peek behind the curtain, get some stuff. Yeah, exactly. Uh, most embarrassing moment. <laughs> Uh, my wife would say every morning. Uh, <laughs> so I, I wake up in the morning and I just, I, I, I'm not a coffee drinker. Yeah. So I don't need caffeine to kind of get me going. Um, so I don't really have any caffeine in my system. And so I'm always like singing, dancing, uh, having fun in the morning. And she's a coffee, you know, don't talk to me before the coffee. Yeah. So I would say every embarrassing moment is not so much embarrassing for me, but it's embarrassing for my wife to like, just say, would you just stop? Would you be normal? And I'm like, this is me every morning. So, okay. Yeah, I would start with that every morning. It's embarrassing. Get you a TikTok account. Uh, You'll yeah. probably stop doing it. <laughs> what What about uh, dinner for three? Three historical figures who are no longer with us. Okay. So I'm going to go Jesus Christ uh, just because I always just want to be able to see uh, and ask him questions and just kind of say, um, is this real? Um, you know, there's a lot of people who believe in you and, uh, in a variety of different ways. And I just want to kind of see that. So I would say that's first, and that's not so much that I doubt, but I just, uh, you know, I believe, but I would also just like to ask them questions like, yeah. you know, just really, uh, you know, favorite, uh, baseball player. I would kind of do a morph of Derek Jeter and Don Mattingly. I grew up a Yankees fan. So I would kind of be in between those two. It would be more Don Mattingly when he was playing for the Yankees. Uh, as opposed to his managing right now. And again, same thing, Derek Jeter, when he was playing for the Yankees. Um, my third one, I don't know. I mean, I would say probably I would like to, again, morph my mother and father into a dinner. Um, and they're still living, so I get to still do that. But I always think that sometimes people want to meet all these other famous people for dinner and stuff. And sometimes it's just like, it's nice to eat with mom and dad. So. Yeah. Okay. So I went over your three limit. And I morph people together, but that's I tend to go outside the box a little bit. So we checked. There's a loophole. You can morph people. So for for future guests. All right. And now this is well, you survived our rapid fire questions. Now is the part that I'm really intrigued to talk about and it's your story. And just as we were talking about favorite movies, those baseball movies, like just real, real stories from people and yours. We spoke on the phone a couple, maybe about a week or two ago, and you were telling me about your upbringings, really interesting upbringings. So if you don't mind telling our audience about your childhood, uh, you know, growing up, what your aspirations were and what did your parents do? Yeah, yeah. No, great. Thanks for asking. Um, 
so I'm first generation. My parents are, came from South America, from uh, Chile, in the uh, southern part of Chile, um, really more the mountains, kind of uh, near Lake, uh, near uh, Villarica. And literally my mother came because she wanted to get out of the farm area. She grew up with uh, 16 brothers and sisters, literally to work the farm. They grew wow. up on a mountain. My father lived at the uh, bottom of the hill and my mother lived on the hill. And um, they, uh, my father was a couple years younger. And so he kind of saw my mother. And again, my mother came here. She was, um, she had moved to the big city, which is Santiago. And then she came to be a nanny in New York. Literally came in 1964, me and my brother, to give us a better life and a better future. But she wasn't married. And me and my brother hadn't been, but we won't be born for another six and then 12 year, or 11 years later. So she was really kind of planning out for her family Yeah. prior to. So um, she went back, got my father. They came to the States and um, we moved to upstate New York. And I grew up in Rensselaer, New York. And it's uh, it's an interesting uh, other side of the Hudson River from the state capital of Albany. And I grew up with some great friends, some great people. Um, but it was always interesting. I was always kind of... Uh, so it was during the time that we didn't have uh, a lot of uh, Hispanic Latino push. Mm -hmm. It was assimilate with everybody. Make sure that you're speaking, you know, English because nobody else is going to understand you. There weren't signs in Spanish. There wasn't, you know, you take a flight or something and you read the directions um, in different languages like that didn't exist. And so, you know, at an early age, I was helping to. You know, I still remember being like eight or nine years old, writing checks in the grocery store because my mother really didn't understand wow. how to write checks. Um, but it was amazing seeing what my parents, the lens that I have now of what they went through for me and my brother to be quote unquote successful um, was really, it's, it's really interesting for me is they just modeled hard work. I mean, we're a classic story. We're, um, you know, my father worked construction and worked his way up and, you know, foreman and all these different things, drove trucks. Um, I mean, we were literally packing our Chevy Nova with uh, with lawnmowers. After work and after school and after baseball practice, we would go and we cut other people's lawns for, for stuff, right? So that's the classic, you know what I mean? Like the funny thing that people talk about. And I just sat there going, yeah, this is just the way you do things. You you work all day long. It doesn't matter what it is. You just, you go to work. Uh, and my mother worked in the mailroom for the state, uh, for the, for New York state. And she delivered mail and she was, you know, the rock of our family. She still is uh, her health insurance and everything that she has, her pension is what supports our family. So, you know, I kind of grew up in this, uh, and a lot of my friends have the same kind of story, a little different, maybe not the immigrant story, um, but, you know, parents who worked really hard to make sure that they had uh, role models. And I got friends who work, uh, you know, high, high corporate jobs and, uh, you know, doctorates and principals and financers and, um, you know, just we all kind of went through stuff. Yeah. And I think it made us what we kind of are today, which is, I don't know what I would say resilient is our group. We're, we're, yeah. we, you know, you ever got to ask your parents about like 
what was perhaps like their biggest struggle making such a huge leap like that? Yeah, my my mother, I've asked her all the time. And, you know, for her, the biggest thing was that she uh, had just tr- so much trouble with the language. Um, yeah. I mean, she didn't, you know, it, it's it's rare for the climb. So my mother did not finish, not, did not even attend high school. And my father finished high school. Um, but high school in there was a little bit different. But um, my mother... You know, so for her to kind of climb, her, for her, her biggest struggle has always been the English language and how kind of people treated her. That that was probably the biggest uh, piece. My father's probably biggest thing is, you know, he's a he's a fun guy. He has a lot of friends and he's a friendly guy. So he, you know, he it was tough him leaving his family and leaving his brother and um, and he had also a large family. He's got a lot of older sisters. Uh, um, that you know look after him and uh and younger sisters that he looks after so you know i think it's really hard and i realize now how much they gave up for me and my brother my brother's about five years older than me yeah what does your brother do now he's a physician assistant in upstate new york uh he actually the funny thing is uh he's moved about 90 miles away from where we grew up and it's where my wife is from. So literally, he is in the hometown of where my wife grew up, which, again, was not about 90 miles away. And so it's funny because he's still the connection to my wife's. So my wife's family is all moved out. Yeah. Um, except for some of her cousins. But her immediate family is all moved out. And my brother is now the the one who's in the area and keeps us kind of posted. So, so yeah, two of y'all turned out pretty good for yourselves. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I mean, from a degree standpoint, I mean, usually if you're talking about first generation, yeah. usually it's, you take one step, right? So, uh, getting an associate's degree or getting a four year bachelor's degree is like the next step. Yeah. Um, my brother was really a big role model for me. I mean, he went to Syracuse and got a biomedical engineering degree, was working for a couple of years and then decided to go back and he wanted to do healthcare and, uh, he went become a physician assistant. So, I'm like, well, he can do it. I can just keep on going. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's kind of what I did. What do you think? Uh, how do you think your parents would articulate it, put it into words, like the success that you and your brother have had, especially after them packing up bags and what did you say, 1964? Yeah, 19, yeah, in the early 60s. Uh, I think my mother and father have always taught us, like, you know, work hard, help other people, and be a good person and be happy. And, you know, be a good uh, family person and things of that nature. They, they were never pushing. Uh, I didn't have tutors. I didn't have ACT preps. Uh, it wasn't you have to become a doctor. You have to become this or that. Um, you know, I got my Ph.D. And I don't know if my mother and father really know what Ph.D.s do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but they do know that I teach and they do know that I, you know, work with, uh, you know, as an athletic trainer, I work with athletes and uh, take care of them and injuries and stuff like that. Um, but I think they know that I, I work in a university and I, and I, I'm a professor. So, um, but that was never their goal. There wasn't, it wasn't like they laid groundwork for us or any of those things. They just modeled good, hard work, honest, and try to, you know, be happy. And, uh, and it's the same thing I try to model for, for my boys. So, yeah, I kind of do the same thing with my daughter. I don't try to push her into you have to bring home all a's or i'm taking your phone for three weeks and this that and the other and then you know it gets a little resentful but 
why why do you think that's because I've had several guests on here before who've talked about it and they said that uh, they actually function so much better not having that stress where it's more um uh, you know, you, you kind of figure things out, especially at a young age as a teenager, and you figure out what you want to do and not live in necessarily your parents' dreams. Uh, what advice would you have for parents with that? Yeah, you know, I think uh, for me, the advice that I have for parents is really just teach them good traits, right? Yeah. Uh, you know, don't be selfish. Uh, I mean, my father is a helper of the neighborhood. Like he, he's 81 years old. He still helps people cut down trees. Oh, wow. Oh yeah. Like he still helps to, you know, build something in the backyard or seed lawns or stuff like that. Cause he stays busy. He still has his own garden. Um, you know, my mother's a little bit older, so she's slowing down a little bit, but she still helps all her friends. And I think this, they just role model. I think parents, you need, need to teach like traits and, and, um, values, right. And what are your values? Are you, you know, are you going to help others? Yes. Are you going to be a nice person? Sure. Um, you know, those are the pieces and do that on a regular basis. Um, yeah. I've never had, you know, my mother or father tell me uh, you need to bring in more money. You need to um, get a bigger house. You need to, you know, move up in your career. Like it's never like I switched colleges a bunch of times. They never gave me a hard time about it. They yeah. just, they knew it wasn't the right fit and they're like, okay, we'll support you. So yeah. it goes in, you know, we were talking about EQ a little bit last time we connected and, you know, it kind of goes into the, it's instilled in us at a young age, IQ, working on technical skills, but you know, it's all about how you make people feel. And, you know, as a, as a parent, making your kid feel valued and feel appreciated and, you know, that those characteristics and traits you can instill in them goes a long way. And when did you start to realize that like sports medicine was kind of the road you want to go down? Uh, interesting. Let me go back to that though. About yeah. we talking about your parents feeling value. My, my mother never missed a game. Yeah. Never missed a game. So she would go into work early. My high school baseball game started at four. Yeah. She would get, she was supposed to get off to work at five. So instead she'd go in two hours early so she could be at my game at three to watch the four o'clock so she could watch me warm up. Oh, wow. And my father, you know, unfortunately couldn't do the same thing, but he was, uh, you know, always trying to be there, but he would, you know, come in at six straight from work and watch my little league games at six. So I think parents showing that without ever, I don't know, like they were cheering me on, but not giving me a tips here and there or whatever. They were just cheering me on. Like, Hey, you got to now. If I did poorly, hey, you got to hustle more. Hey, you got to have more energy. Um, they would say it in Spanish, um, but you know, you you got to play like a you know, a, like a tiger. Like you're not playing like a tiger. She would yell out to me in Spanish, and yeah, um, you know, and and it was, it was that understanding of how you're supposed to do things, not necessarily whether you won, lost, got awards, didn't get awards, or whatever. It wasn't the the quiet car ride home. No, I mean, it, it was, no, 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 it wasn't. It was, uh, you know, my mother and my father both were pretty, but my mother more so. Uh, hey, you played terrible today. Yeah. Um, but hey, it's okay. You you know, you'll get it tomorrow. Yeah. And yeah. if I played well. Teaching you honest was, feedback. Yeah. And if I played well, it was, hey, you played really well today. You got to do, you know, do it again tomorrow. <laughs> like, yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was just kind of expected. I, yeah. I don't know. 
Uh, I just wanted to, you know, reemphasize that for parents. Like, if a parent doesn't believe in their child, who is? That's so true. Like, if a parent doesn't believe in the dreams of their child, who's going to believe in their child's dreams? Yep. And that doesn't mean that they're going to be achieved. I wanted to play for the Yankees. I I didn't. But I think it's important that my parents supported me trying to play for the Yankees. Yeah. And they didn't know any better one way or the other. And they were not disappointed that I didn't play for the Yankees. Um, so, you know, I, I just, I say that all the time to parents. I was like, oh, my, you know, a lot of kids. Uh, and it doesn't mean that they have to clear the roadblocks for them and all that stuff. I'm just saying, hey, believe in it and, and, I don't know. I think that's one of the biggest things parents can do is believe in their child's dreams. I was vertically challenged from birth and I swore as a kid, it's one of the smallest in my grade growing up that I was going to be a starting point guard at North Carolina. And my mom, to her credit, sent me to Dean Smith basketball camp. What year, what year were you there? I was there 94. 95 and 96 uh you might have i might have worked your camp you might have <laughs> i worked i worked i worked dean smith basketball camps in 90 let me see i got there in 95 so i probably worked one of your camps yeah Derek phelps was my coach one year <laughs> yeah. uh, kevin madden was my coach one year yeah. i still remember the the coaches there like interacting and joking with them but she she kept sending me to carolina camp every year staying at granville towers yeah, and, yeah. Uh, still su- supporting this this dream that I had, and uh, I-, I think she knew in her heart of hearts I was I was never gonna. I, I tell people I opted to go military. Right. Um, right. Yeah, but but uh, but no, she supported me, and never one time. Hindsight, I'm like, oh, she could have squashed that so yeah. early. Have been like, let's save a lot of money here, but she supported. Yeah. Yeah, no, uh, you know, and I, I love your saying you opted to go military, right? Yeah. You come to the realization of the things that you can and can't do, right? But I don't think it's up to somebody else to to really tell you, like, it's not up to your parents to tell you what you can and can't do. I think they need to believe in what your dreams are. And think of all the lessons you learned there by going to the Dean Dome, right? And having those experiences and seeing, you know, these other really good players and seeing really good coaches and just, you know, coming out of your stuff. Like, I think those experiences yeah you didn't become an unc starting basketball point guard but the brief part that you were on that path still made you who you are today that and i can tear it up in a church league (laughs) (laughs) we gotta play a little hoops together i I might hurt something but that's okay i could tear it up in a church league where i pick up game at the y but (laughs) acc wasn't in the cards for me but yeah, when when did you start to, to see that like sports medicine and going that route was was something yeah. you were passionate about? So uh, ninth grade, I got hurt pretty well. I was hurt a couple of different times. I was always hurt in football and basketball. Um, I was never hurt in baseball. I never had a baseball injury, uh, but I was always hurt. I never had a baseball injury that made me miss time. Okay. I had football injuries that made me miss time, and I had basketball injuries that made me miss. What time. positions did you play in all these sports? Uh, like. So football, I was running back and linebacker. Yeah. Um, uh, basketball, I was more shooting guard. And, and baseball, I was shortstop, second base, third base. So middle infield. I, shortstop right. all through high school. And then college, it was like, you're a little slow. You should play the corner. Yeah. Um, so, you know, and I played a little second base on some of those things. There's like, 
you know, it's funny, you know, when they move you away from shortstop, they either tell you you're too slow and you play third base or they move you to second, they say your arm's not strong enough. So somehow I either got faster or my arm got weaker, <laughs> one or the other. I was and, second baseman because my arm was weak. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I used to get uh, anatomy books. Um, so I would get like an anatomy coloring book for Christmas. And I liked them, the medicine. I liked kind of figuring out the anatomy part. Um, and then I liked trying to figure out uh, the injury part. And it really kind of tugged me in a couple different ways. Because um, I think if I didn't go down sports medicine route, I would have gone full head into coaching. And I was kind of in the middle of both of those. But there was a, I was a sophomore in high school. And uh, parents and kids uh, may remember these things. You had career day. Oh, yeah. People- come in for and just talk about their different careers and so i had a certified athletic trainer from uh rensselaer polytechnic institute rpi which is where i first went to school he came in and he was the hockey athletic trainer for rpi and rpi in upstate new york was like a very high academic school and their hockey team was division one very very good and he basically told me about their day like you know i handle emergency management when the hockey player goes down i handle immediate assessment i I, you know, help to try to do all these uh, medical things. Um, and I also get to watch, you know, them play every, you know, all the games and all the practices. And I was like, oh, I like that. Yeah. Like now instead of just coaching, I can go in and and combine the medicine part. So I put as my senior year, I said I was going to be a doctor of sports medicine. Okay. For my yearbook. Yep. I had no idea what medical school was. I had no idea that you go to medical school after you go to undergraduate. I had no idea what an MCAT was. I had no idea how you even get through medical school or apply or any of these things. Well, why? Because I never had anybody to kind of teach me any of those pieces. Mm. Um, so it's funny because I got a PhD in human movement science and I, uh, and I have a bachelor's and master's in exercise and sports science with a, specializations in athletic training. So I am a doctor in sports medicine, but as my mother says, I'm the kind of doctor. So I'm not a medical doctor. So she sometimes jokes with me and says, well, he's a doctor, but not the kind that helps people. So you do more research, right? I do. I do a lot more research. Uh, I, you know, have been clinically active as more of a strength and conditioning human performance kind of catch all piece. So I don't really do a lot of the medical healthcare coverage anymore. Um, but I have done, you know, a variety of that, everything from middle school to high school, to college, to military, to, you know, everything from lacrosse to hockey, to baseball, to football, so on and so forth. Yeah. I needed to talk to you a couple of weeks ago. I had a sciatica issue yeah. and was, was out for quite some time. My yeah, wife yeah, said, fun. Yeah, she said, I, I get to see how you're going to be in 40 years from now. Uh, um, you'll be fine. Just brush your teeth on a regular basis. What I mean by that is do your exercise on a regular basis, just like brushing your teeth. Oh, yeah. Okay. I like that. So what were some of the struggles you went through with, I mean, because you went, like you said, RPI, and then you went to, was it Florida after that? <laughs> yeah, I eventually got to Florida. Uh, so RPI, I loved it. It was great. Um, <laughs> they didn't know really what to do with me because I was trying to tell them what I wanted to do. And... Um, I was one of three in a major. So my entire major were three people for, for across all four years of school. Yep. Uh, I was an independent science major. 
uh, sorry, interdisciplinary science major, which okay. means my very first semester I took physics. Uh, the lowest level math that they had was calculus. So physics, calculus, chemistry, biology, and then I had one GE class, which was a sociology class. Um, and I would, I look back now as a professor, I go, wow, were, were they trying to kill you? I mean, like, yeah, that hurt listening to it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I struggled and it was tough. And uh, I always say I batted 388, um, but my GPA was a 2.5. So I did better at baseball than I did at school. I, at the time, I looked at it as like, well, I, I can't handle this. 2.5 is not going to get me into graduate school and so on and so forth. Um, I look back on it now going, I survived with a 2.5 with that schedule and playing baseball. I'm, I'm okay. Yeah. But I, I stopped. I, I kind of did one of those things like, all right, am I going pro? I had a really good year. No scouts were talking to me uh, because I was at a division three academic school. Right. Uh, it just wasn't, I wasn't thinking that way. I was trying to think more practical and I got the tuition bill on August 1st of the second year of college. And I said, Nope, I'm going to go to community college. I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm not going to pay this bill. Yeah. So I left, went to Hudson Valley community college, started looking for other four-year schools. Uh, I got a little scholarship money to go to university of Indianapolis. I went there spent a semester and just realized like, this isn't it. This isn't what I want to do. Went back, graduated from the community college and went to the university of Florida after that. Then I started figuring it out. Yeah. Um, so yeah, that was some early stroke. I'm, I'm going to steal that part too. I, my, my GPA, my first semester in college was like, I think it was a 2.5. So I'm going to say I was averaging more for first Presbyterian church. Uh, yeah. than... you're, you're averaging 3.8 points a game. Like yeah. You were, yeah. <laughs> so, so I tell my students that right off the bat, you know, like, so when I teach uh, intro or first time I meet students, I was like, look at, you know, it, it's, it's not always an easy, clear path. Yeah. People with PhDs don't just magically have 4.0 GPAs. Like you, st you will have to figure it out. And some of you will figure it out earlier than others. Mm -hmm. Some of you won't ever figure it out. Um, and the GPA is just a number, but it, it, it indicates whether you figured out how to get a GPA doesn't mean you learned anything. Yeah. It just means you know how to get a GPA. So at Florida, I figured out how to get a GPA and I was never below a 3.7 there. Um, so, you know, then I, then I started figuring that out in grad school too. And like, all right, I can do this school thing. How was your time in Chapel Hill? Awesome. I got my master's and, uh, and my PhD there. Um, Chapel Hill changed my life. My mentor changed my life. Really? Um, Oh yeah. It, all of them. Every, every mentor that I had there, um, ones who I liked and ones who I didn't like changed my life. And, uh, you know, even the ones, uh, so my mentor is, uh, is the chancellor there now. So Kevin Guskowitz was my advisor there hmm. and he showed me how to do like really do college. Yeah. How to really do university. But not only did he show me that, he also showed me how do you be a family man? How do you, make an impact on society? How do you, you know, carry yourself on a regular basis? How do you serve others? Um, it's taken me a long time to break out of my selfishness. Um, and uh, I still say I'm a recovering jerk. Um, <laughs> and Kevin's always been a great, great guy. Everybody loves Kevin. And he's, he's really, really just a phenomenal person. But there's uh, so many other people there, uh, Bill Prentice and uh, Rob Schneider and uh, you know so so many people I could name and classmates that I still talk to and I got an email from one of them today. She's the program director, at University of Pittsburgh, 
and I think of her and her friend, uh, and I just laugh. Like, you know, those people in your life, like, you know them and you're like, there's not been a bad moment when you're with them. I work with some of them right now. Yeah. And that's awesome. And it's like, you wish those things could always be there, but it, it really can't. Right. Cause there's yeah. snapshots of time. Yeah. So my snapshot in time, uh, Carolina is, uh, it's very, very special. I mean, it was really, we were there from 95 to 2002 and both my wife, uh, that's where we first moved in together and it's where we got married. It's, uh, where our first son was born. Like that place changed my entire trajectory of life. Okay. Some Sutton's drugstore over on Franklin street and Got it. yeah, yeah. Rat really? Skeller. Remember the rat Skeller back in the oh, day? Oh, I remember the rat Skeller. Yeah. Yeah. I was uh, trying to explain the rat Skeller to my daughter. I was like, if, if the meat was still moving on the gambler, then it was good. You know, uh, you know, he's not here was a, a, a good place. Do you know he's not at all? Yep. <laughs> yep. I'm, yeah. I'm, I could walk through Chapel Hill with my eyes closed. Um, so a couple of questions. So first of all, yeah, you were there during Dean Smith's, the end of his career, 97. And then you were there through Guthridge and Darty too. Yep. What Favorite memory from there in terms of athletics? Uh, Antoine Jameson. Um, my wife thought he so was underrated. Uh, my wife thought he was just the way he played and the energy that he had. Um, and Vince Carter was cool. Don't get me wrong. Like Vince was just a flyer and could do everything, yeah. right? And shoot and jump. And, you know, he had a great, great, you know, NBA career. And, um, but my wife and I just, you know, we just kind of liked the way Antoine played. Uh, so that was like one of my favorite moments. Um, but I'll tell you my all-time favorite moment is playing pickup with the football team and basketball players together. Um, man, I saw Julius Peppers. So think Julius Peppers. Remember, he was a two-way player. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So he was a football player and a basketball player. Julius Peppers did some things when, you know, this. they would play against each other on the A court. Um, was this like, like at Woolen? Yeah, exactly, okay. at Woolen. Yep. And they would play on the A court, and, and I'm sitting there, and I'm playing because uh, I was – uh <laughs> this is great i was napoleon basketball right so that's six foot and under and okay. i'm five, i'm five eleven maybe six foot just depends on the day uh so six foot and under we were napoleon uh three on three champions so me and my other graduate right so Does hey aaron aaron conrad knows that right aaron definitely knows that he's he's he aaron are in a real champion yeah oh yeah but this is that's the one of the biggest bonds that we have yeah and so that year, Julius Peppers lays down a dunk that I just couldn't believe. Uh, comes from the side and like, you know, and maybe my my imagination has changed it over the years, but I swear he grabs the bar on the side because you know how they came out from the side yep. wall? Grabs the bar on the side, swings himself up and dunks. And I'm like, oh my gosh, how do you, like, he's a football player. Yeah. Something like that. I mean, he's a Big big guy. Um, so that those those two, Antoine Jameson, my favorite, and then Julius Pepper is like the most athletic and a really nice guy. We get we you know we were we were doing some uh, testing of athletes then, and he was just a really nice guy. So. Antoine Jameson's criminally underrated. Is a I agree. I agree. Like people forget about him. I actually had Shaman Williams on the podcast from the oh yeah the that era. So yeah, was, he could shoot it a little bit. Yeah, it was it was a really good episode. Yeah. Um, 
it, so you said taught you how to do college. What and some insider stuff here. I got a daughter who's probably going to be going to college here. All right, I'm going to give you the my my three best pieces for success in college. Um, and there's a lot of people who downplay college. You don't need college. You don't need that to go get blah blah blah. Uh, I say college. The, the way to play it is number one, understanding that a GPA and learning are two different things. Mm-hmm. They're not the same. And so you got to learn how to get a GPA. So there's where like. Don't take four extremely hard classes at the same exact time because it's extremely stressful and it's really hard to do these other two things. Um, so learn how to get a GPA, which means the classes that you should get an A in or an A minus in, you need to get an A and an A minus in and don't forget that because three credits of an A in whatever level class you think and three credits of a hard level class, they count the same way on a GPA. So you got to you got to understand how you set up your classes. Second thing is is knowledge. And I really think especially in current society there's a lot of people who are make believe experts and uh you know you can go on Twitter right now and find them all. Um and I then I can't believe, yeah, I can't believe how many people got advanced degrees in so many different sciences during our recent pandemic. Um but you got to learn knowledge. So statistics for us and things that we do, anatomy, statistics, research design, understanding methodology, uh, understanding real communication systems, listening systems, things of that nature. So you have to learn above what other people who haven't gone into college have learned. And everybody says, well, common sense and hard knocks and all these things are great lessons. Yeah, but you still have to have knowledge. And that knowledge isn't always in the classroom. It is, you know, sometimes on the intramural court, uh, sometimes in the dorm room, sometimes in just your finances. Like, oh, I want to go buy a, you know, a car. Like, okay, so what resources do you have? Have you created credit and stuff like that? So when I say knowledge, it's not just book knowledge. It's it's learning everything mm-hmm. about handling college. So GPA is different than knowledge. And then the third thing really is getting to know people. And I don't just mean classmates um, or fraternities or sororities or anything. I mean, professors and grad students and and people in different classes, different than you. I just gave a lecture, a guest lecture in a class, um, 150 students and about 50 showed up. Not, not because of me, but just because they've been. And I sit there going, I wonder if the other 100 students realized that they paid to not go to class today. It wasn't recorded. Yeah. Wasn't on Zoom. They just decided not to go to class. What other place would you pay money? Would you pay, you know, a hundred dollars to go to a movie and you won't go? Right. Would you pay two hundred dollars to go to a hotel for a night and you don't stay there? I'd be sick. <laughs> would you pay a hundred dollars for a meal and you say, No, no, I don't I'm not hungry? Yeah. But kids do that in college. And it blows my mind. And, but I had to learn that. Like I, I, I did the same thing. I had you know, to do. <laughs> Right. But then I started realizing later I was paying for something and not using it. Then I realized that's absolutely insane. Yeah. It really is. When you think about it. So networking is uh, a huge piece, uh, getting to know as many different people, as many different levels, 
Um, I got to know my professor who, who changed my life, Kevin, Dr. Guskowitz, uh, because he was doing a research project on ankle instability. Uh, he's a huge concussion researcher now. Um, so you can read any concussion piece and he's going to be in it somewhere um, or his work. And uh, but he was doing an ankle thing and a classmate of mine who was really interested in research and knew he wanted to get a Ph.D. Um, was helping him. And I was just competitive. I was like, well, if he can do it, I can do it. So I went and started learning how to help. Um, and then, you know, forming relationships of like, oh, OK, this is something I can do. I would have never become a researcher, Ph.D., college professor if I didn't meet um you know the people at North Carolina would have never yeah you mentioned concussions you've you've researched and studied concussions right yeah yeah so I've, I've been on all the different spectrums I've the concussion world to me is kind of a little bit um like uh I, I guess a little bit like military and a little bit like the mafia um yeah. you you leave and then you're just suddenly kind of back in um so I started in the concussion world in 1995, uh, looking at a variety of different things and concussions back then. I mean, it was still like, all right, if you don't have any problems after 15 minutes, go back and play. Yeah, take some water, go back in. Yeah. I mean, literally, we still had packs smelling salts in our mm -hmm. in our kit so that we can, you know, hey, you're fine. Okay, go. So those were some of the early research things that uh, I did um, was really sideline assessment pieces uh, with my with my. Uh, graduate student colleague, uh, Brian Riemann. And he, he taught me a lot of, uh, you know, really good information about concussion and research and stuff like that. But yeah, I started in that. And then I've kind of meandered around uh, a variety of different human performance things. I do knee research, ACL research, uh, human performance factors, mental health, a variety of different things, but I'm still always involved um, in concussion. And we just got a big grant looking at youth football and looking at concussions in youth football. So first time experience for youth football. Everybody wants to, you know, condone and, you know, parents are terrible, do not let them play youth football, so on and so forth. Well, we don't have a lot of information on them. Yeah. And I also, you know, I think there's some value. I learned some great lessons playing youth football. Oh yeah. And I think other people have also. And just to take it away because I mean, youth football is not the same as the NFL. It's, it's a different ball game. Um, so we're doing some instrumented mouth guards and some uh, brain imaging and some different uh, balance tests. And then we're also doing that same thing in law enforcement. And so we're working with a sheriff's office and we're going to be doing a lot of different concussion pieces with law enforcement. So yeah, I've been in and out of the concussion world for a while. Yeah. What do you think of the strides that you see, especially like in professional football and college football and how they're, you know, protecting the quarterback and, uh, you know, you get a concussion, you're out for a couple of games now, as like you mentioned before, it was salt and you're back in there. Yeah, it's huge. I mean, it's huge. I mean, every, every, you know, decade, uh, huge jumps every five years, huge jumps. Uh, you know, the way that we used to uh, handle recovery was go sit in a dark room and take all your toys away. Right. Think about that. Yeah. Okay. So if I were to do that when you were healthy, you would still get sick. Mm -hmm. So why would, why would we think that that's the best way to handle a concussion? Yeah. Or, or the better one. Uh, hey, let me wake you up every two hours. Yeah. Okay. So if you were healthy and I woke you up every two hours, do you think you'd be irritated? Do you think you'd have a headache? Do you think you'd be, you know, really really drowsy yes 
Yeah. So we used to wake people up every couple hours so that we could check, like, our strides strides have gone so far and, you know, uh, but there's still a lot of work to do. I mean, still people. um, So I had a, so one of our faculty members, she's a really, really good concussion expert and she's great. Well, her husband (laughs) is in the basement doing something, hits his head, gets knocked out. Doesn't tell his wife. Normal, normal husband behavior. Yeah. Because he wants to go to work the next day and not miss any time. So the next day he goes to work and he's nauseous, headache, not feeling well. The computer screen's causing more problems and he has to go home early. So he goes home, he says, hey, I'm feeling sick. Doesn't tell her why. He doesn't think it's from the concussion. Mm. So the second day, same thing happens. And then he calls her and says, hey, you know what? I didn't tell you, but do you think this could be because I fell and hit my head the other day? She said, what? And he explains it all to her. She goes, yes, you had a concussion. Let's go home and rest up. Now, it doesn't mean eliminate everything, but rest up a little bit. Take those. So there's a lot of work to still be done. Uh, I told her I was going to use the story for, for classes and podcasts. I didn't say her name. Yeah, no, that's that's so true though, because like you, you you hurt your leg, you hurt your arm, you feel it, it's nagging. Concussion is kind of scary because you can bump your head and be like, "Oh, I'm good now," and move on. But those, like you said, those lingering effects, it's it's yeah. hard to see. Yeah, and that's why you need uh, good, honest people around you. I think I think the awareness of your friends, your family, and your healthcare workers, right? Mm-hmm. So, athletic trainers, physical therapists, physicians, nurses, so on and so forth. Those are the people that you need to have in your network to see if you're actually really different. I think a lot of times we don't know ourselves because we're going through it, right? When I had my concussions, I I didn't know that I was slow. I didn't know my reaction times were bad. I didn't realize like uh, how long I was knocked out. Like, you know, I just know I was knocked out. Like I remember going to hit somebody and I remember waking up and lights were on the stadium and I'm laying on my back. Um, I don't remember how long. (laughs) So you know, I think that's why it's important for the people around you to recognize the signs, yeah. not always just you. Yeah, that's so true. And talk to us about a movement lab. Like what all, uh, yeah, I heard you talking about it on Unscripted, but tell us, yeah. it sounds like I have some pretty cool little gadgets. Yeah, we got a lot of things in our moves lab and we're actually getting ready to potentially, we haven't fully decided we may change our name. Uh, so I'll kind of keep that under wraps for a little bit until we announce it to our students. But we got some cool new names that I think I really like. So, um, yeah, we have everything from, uh, you know, force plates to see how, you know, the forces that you land or jump. We have uh, motion capture so we can do all the dots and all the, you know, the little skeletons that kind of, you know, dance and play. We got markerless motion capture. We got IMUs, which is inertial measurement units. Um, accelerometers we have heart rate monitors we have aura rings that do uh, sleep monitoring we got a big virtual reality cave Um, we got a lot of toys so uh, I've I've used the toys for uh, for research I've also used the toys just for like just figuring out different things so I've messed around with baseball a little bit Um, and we've done football we did some uh, three really good quarterbacks at OSU back in the day Um, that that we had and uh it's it's been fun just i i'm i'm a i have a phd in human movement science so i like the whole gamut of movement 
Yeah. You know, so like uh, we've done shooting. Uh, so one of my doctoral students did shoot on the move and looking at the body torso and how you shoot on the move versus how you stand still and shoot, um, which are really different. Yeah. And then demand, demands are really different. So people who really know how to shoot in real combat, I'm not talking about just like range shooting mm-hmm. uh, for soldiers like yourself. Um, you know, there's a different demand when you have to shoot on the move and how that works. So what's the most rewarding part of your job so far? Most rewarding. Uh, I think students uh, having the light bulb go off of how teaching and research uh, can better the world. Um, Not just one-on-one, but like a force multiplier. So the way I kind of put it is when I was, whenever I do clinician or coaching, uh, I feel like it's a one-on-one, right? So it's like me yep. and you. Yep. Like your podcast, it could go out to 10 people who may say the same thing to another 10 people and then to another 10 people. So it's like a force multiplier. Yep. So now I have a force multiplier. When I see students get kind of what I'm saying or, or what we're trying to teach or do research on, and it starts spreading from there, I think that's the most rewarding is like, wow, I could hit somebody in another world or another country or another place in the world and not even know it and have an impact on their life. That's why I think the podcast that you guys do and, you know, and Aaron does and everything, I don't think you guys really realize how powerful that is and how powerful it, it is over time. Like, yeah looking back on something you go, man, that statement was really powerful, but I didn't really figure that out until 10 years from now. Yeah. So I feel like that's the same thing in education. I think that's all we're doing in podcasts is educating and researching and discussing and stuff like that. It's so weird how you just said that, because for me, I was telling someone today, one of the students asked most rewarding piece. And I said, seeing that light bulb go off, I was like, as a, as an educator, as a coach, when you see like it clicks with someone else and they get it, that's, that's when, you know, you're, 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 that's what you meant to do. And, and you just get that good feeling. But then that force multiplier thing, I was just telling uh, them as well today that I said, just think about it right now. Y'all have been late, but basically our course, we have instructors who come through and we teach them how to teach and right. we teach them questioning techniques, active listening skills, classroom management, all that good stuff. But I was like, right now, you've probably been, you know, leading like five to 10 people in your career. Now you're going to have 16 people every single class, seven times a year. Those each one of those people can go out and talk to 10 different people who they are going to train people. So like you said, that force multiplier, I was like, your footprint around the military is going to be crazy. uh, How much it's going to reach to people from different countries and all around that you will never, ever see or hear and you'll never fully know. But it's it's a lot of power doing that for for three years. Yeah, no, I I couldn't agree more. You know, I I like I just came back from my son's baseball game, and there's two athletic trainers, and one of them was our student, and basically those two are in charge of a school about close to two thousand individuals, so close to about five hundred athletes. Um, two people in charge of those five hundred athletes. You think about the force multiplier part of how training one of those two people, uh, you know, let's just say she covers half. That's 250, and two of those were my boys. So the stuff that she was learning in my class 
Yeah. He's not only applying it to my family members and all their friends in the whole community. Like, you know, that's huge. And, and for me that, that, again, that force multiplier piece is what the so, so much fun about education and research. Cause I kind of put those two things together. Yeah, no, absolutely. And then uh, talk to us about, you know, coaching, being a mindset coach. Uh, so you're, you're a coach on and off the field. Uh, you know, this topic I brought up also biggest difference to you between a mentor and a coach. Ah, that's great. Uh, I think a coach is somebody who is helping kind of shape the, the, the coach for me is more like the guardrails mm-hmm. and they're kind of guiding along the way. And they're, they're helping to kind of guide and, and they helped you to, you know, sometimes you go out of the guardrails and they kind of get you back in. Right. I think a mentor is more like uh, somebody who's almost leading the way and you're kind of following their path a little bit. So for me, I consider myself a coach. I think it's one of the biggest honors that I could be called. Um, I always, you know, it's funny. I hear coaches say they, their biggest honor. I'm listening to Bill Wash's book, book and Bill Wash, you know, the San Francisco 49ers yeah. and all that stuff. And he said his biggest honor was being called a teacher. And it's funny because my biggest honor is being called a coach and everybody that I teach um, thinks that I teach like a coach. And I, I, I take that as, because I think as a coach, I also want to motivate. I also want to uh, help them embrace some of their wins and their losses and learn from it. So for me, the coach is more of a guardrail piece and a mentor is more kind of like a, a model, a role model. Um, I, I know that the people classify them different ways, but that's just the way I kind of look at it. And for me, the mindset side of things, um, you know, it kind of hit me probably about five years ago, uh, my boys and everything and just kind of stuff that they, you know, they're successful, but stuff that they were just going through and then stuff that I was going through and just trying to learn like what else is there in life besides, you know, getting awards and PhDs and grants and stuff like that. And for me, the last uh, and the greatest piece is trying to help people learn how to handle their problems better. Yeah. And so that's why I started the company that I do, which is uh, really about mindset development. Yeah. Talk to us about your company. Yeah. So it's called uh, Do Mojo. So Mojo is magical powers. And the do part is like, let's do our magical power. So our catchphrase is, Uh, tapping into the magical power of the mind. Essentially, it's executive coaching for teenagers, so age 13 to 19, um, really in the transition phase of their life. So middle school to high school, high school to college, college to maybe pro. Um, And I say pro, it's either sports or just life in general, right? So going to the military is going pro, things of that nature. And what we try to do is provide um, very similar structure of what executive coaching has done for adults. So we don't just give a 10 week formula and here, just go out and do it. Um, we basically do zoom. So we're, we're online across the country. Um, you know, so we've coast to coast, uh, different teenagers. We try to work around their schedule, but I usually have group sessions and individual sessions. Um, we're expanding our coaching piece. The model is really set up to, um, work around some of the consistent, you know, uh, mindset pieces. So we're based in contextual intelligence. 
and we utilize the four R's of contextual intelligence, which is essentially recognize, reorder, respond, and reflect. So they learn that part. Um, but we have different topics about conf like last night's was about confidence. And what does confidence look like? What does confidence sound like? What does confidence really mean? Uh, my son, and so it's a close to peer program also. So my assistants who come on are either college students or high school students. My son's a senior. My youngest son's a senior. So he comes and mentors like the freshmen and middle schoolers because he's really close in their age. Yeah. Versus, you know, I'm 52 years old. So, um, but I can give the content in the way I teach it is um, it's, it's really, they're giving feedback too. So yesterday we were doing something really good. Um, what are things that increase and decrease your confidence? Mm. So we have tables that they're filling in and everybody's kind of chiming in. And my son said uh, it was like a proud dad moment, uh, but also a proud, like, Hey, he's been listening to my mindset stuff for this stuff. He said, increase confidence, be supportive of others, decrease confidence, be selfish. Mm. And I was like, Oh man, what do you mean by that? And he's like, when I have good confidence, I'm not worried about what I do because I'm just worried about helping other people. And that gives me confidence to just kind of do, I could do whatever because I know I'm being supportive. Yeah. When I'm selfish about my stats and my grades and my day and my stuff and my things. And that's when I really, I have doubts. If I don't do well, I have less confidence. If I do well, I have false confidence. It's just, so I thought it was great saying supportive versus selfish. And so that's our company. So we do, um, we're getting ready to launch a little bit more nationally right now. We're, we're, that's uh, just a couple of us making content and Aaron's doing all the, my unscripted handles, all our social media and everything um, and our website. So we're just getting our feet on the ground. Uh, we've been running for about a, this coming summer. So two months will be two years. Um, my goal is to be an overnight success in 15 years. Um, <laughs> That's, yeah. Yeah. And, and the model really is lends itself. Like we're going to have 13 year olds and 19 year olds. We know that that's a tough period. Um, we try to live in the space in the middle and I've lived in the middle all my life. Uh, Hispanic American first generation, so on and so forth. Clinician, coach, athletics, academics. Um, so I want to live in the middle here on one end of the spectrum. We have excellent therapists, counselors, social workers, psychologists, psychiatrists. We have a need for those. Yeah. And we know the numbers of anxiety and depression and mental health issues is a, you know, in that 13 to 19 year old age is somewhere in the 20% range or a little bit lower, a little bit higher, but let's just say 20 to 25%. On the other end of the spectrum, who helps to guide our teenagers, teachers, coaches, and parents. Yep. Who do teenagers rarely listen to? Exactly. Teachers, coaches. Yeah. And so what I want to have is be the space in the middle that not only gives some information very similar to what teachers, coaches, and parents say, but it's a different voice. But I also want to add some of the executive high-level coaching strategies that they might not fully understand as 13 to 19-year-olds, but it gives them the framework for later on to be able to reflect back and go, I got a framework for this. I know my four R's. I know what success is. Success isn't just cars, titles, and money. I know what relationships are. I know how to listen. It's not just 
sitting there, yeah. right? Responding. It's doing all the things that you do. You're, you, you know, even though we're on Zoom, you're still locked in. I'm looking at your eye. You're not just fumbling with the next paper and looking around and eating your meal and all that stuff. Um, that's the stuff I want to teach them at an early age so that their contextual intelligence, their emotional intelligence, all those pieces rise up. What a good, like, age demographic to be targeting in on and because that's when they need that the most 13 and 19 they don't know what they're feeling they don't know how to describe what they're feeling and going through in their mindset and just getting them on there and talking about these you know tough topics and things that you know it's hard for them to really express what would you say is one of the biggest hurdles that uh you know kids in that age range have to deal with parents you think more so than social media? Yeah, I do. I think it's parents. Yeah. I think it's more than social media. I, um, parents, and, and I and I don't mean just, I mean, everything from parents being gone, parents being there but being absent, parents, helicopter parents, uh, high expectation parents, perfectionist parents, uh, parents who think that their child doesn't need any assistance, Um Parents who want to live their life through their child. I mean, all the variety of those things. Yeah. Uh, I think that's one of the biggest uh, supports and also one of the biggest hurdles. I, I really, I think social media, I'm not a, I'm not against it. And what I mean by that is we know cars cause accidents that kill people. Mm-hmm. Yeah. We still teach teenagers how to drive cars. Yeah. I look at the same way for social media. There are things that you can learn from social media that benefit. But what do we normally say? Shut it down. Take it away. Don't give them a phone. Don't. To me, that's teaching them the skills of not how to handle society. Yeah. My kid won't have a phone until they're 18 or whatever. Yeah. I hear, that. I hear the parents wear that with a badge of honor. Yeah. Like, hey, great. Good luck. I mean, I think you're – they might not have a reliance on it, but I think they're going to have a hard time once they see what they can do with all that stuff. Yeah. It, my wife and I were having a conversation. It's kind of like, you know, the, and I'm not knocking on any parents out there that are like this, but it's the ones who like shelter them from any harm, anything bad in the world. And then they get to be 14, 15, 16 years old. And what's the first thing they do? They rebel. And so, yeah, it's, it, we've, we've, the way we've brought up Becton has always been like, we're going to be transparent and open with her about anything. If she wants to, I've had guests on here that we've talked about, you know, when's the right time to talk about sex with your kids. And it's like, well, that's, you know, once that gets, why not earlier? Why not have that conversation versus someone I just heard who their seven-year-old just had to come to their parents and ask them about what they heard at school. Um, So it's, it's tough. Yeah, I'm not going to tell people how to parent. I, I I don't have it all down. I don't think any of us have it all down because mm-hmm. it's a changing model. Um, you know, I do have my own beliefs of different things, uh, just like, you know, you do. Um, for me, it's a role modeling piece. It's understanding that we're flawed. Like I tell my, you know, uh, my boys, uh, they're, you know, one's 21 and one's 18. I, I tell them, you know, they're, they laugh like, oh, he's telling the, recovering jerk story um that it's all about himself every day and he's got to overcome that but it is i mean i have a you know an ego right and 
if I'm going to serve others, I got to be able to have that ego in check. Yeah. Um, it's hard. It's a hard thing every day. So, you know, seeing those types of things, I also, um, you know, again, having conversations about drinking and things of that nature. Um, you know, I think it's again, a responsibility, right? Mm-hmm. Can you responsibly, you know, I'm not the, Hey, uh, 17 year olds are coming over to my house and I want them to responsibly drink so I can teach them how to do that. No, no, I, that's not the case. But if they do go somewhere and do all those things, like you need to responsibly, like who's driving, I'm going to drive, you're going to call, um, you know, you're going to know that tomorrow's not going to feel good. Um, you know, you're going to know that there's ramifications and blah, blah, blah. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, you know, you can, you can listen to some of the podcasts that are against drinking and you can hear those same things like, yeah, this doesn't help us. We yeah. think it helps us, but it doesn't really help us. Um, you know, so I, I think, the parenting piece, you just have to know what your style is and be open to, you know, be flexible on those pieces too. But I think role modeling is an important part. So, Yeah. And final thing before we we wrap up this episode, talk about, was it research consultant to Naval Special Warfare yeah. Group? Yeah, yeah. So I was uh, hanging with some Navy uh, uh, guys. And uh, when I was at Old Dominion University, I, I, I went there in Norfolk uh, in 2003 and I left in 2010. So my first uh, semester there, I was like, oh, I got all these Navy ships around and all this stuff, right? So I'm going to send out, I just went through and kind of looked and sent out this big wide open, hey, come visit our lab and look at our cool toys, right? Mm -hmm. Everything that we do for athletics, we can do for the military, okay? Uh, So I gave that presentation and for three years, nobody said a word. Really? Oh, yeah, yeah. They're like... I'm like, okay, well, that ship sailed, and I was doing ACL research and, uh, you know, uh, women's soccer and all those things. So then I remember in January of 2006, I got a phone or a phone call or an email. I forgot. Hey, come down to, uh, you know, this location in Virginia Beach. I want to show you something, see what you think. And so I got brought down. It was January in Virginia Beach, raining and cold, and I didn't have, you know, all the right gear. And I remember showing up on base and I'm like weaving through uh, this part of base and I'd never been on a military base. So I'm sitting here going, okay, what do I do? Um, They're like, oh, you come to this part. And so I went to that part and at five o'clock in the morning, they got all these cars lined up with their lights on and all these guys running around on the field, dragging dummies and jumping walls and all this stuff. And I'm like, what am I looking at? And what they were doing was a basically, you guys would call it now, the, the new Army Army Combat Fitness Test or whichever yeah. brand. And they were doing uh, for this one group, this special group, the you got to be one before you can be one, and it's the highest of the high. Um, and I still, you know, I, I took, uh, you know, secret clearance, top secret, blah, 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 oaths. So I still don't talk about them publicly, yeah. but, you know, you, people can figure out what's happening in Virginia Beach. Um, and I looked at that and I remember they brought me into the commander and he came in and I wasn't read in or anything at this time. And he's just telling me what they do, what they, what their real job is, you know, after I went through another barrier and all this stuff and they had like real guns and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, Oh, those are big guns. Like that's not show. Yeah. So I get brought back and they're like, yeah, nothing that you see here or say here, you can't use your phone. You can't have pictures and blah, blah, blah. Right. So so the commander comes in and and the three guys who are sitting there, um, they're kind of wide-eyed with the commander coming in. 
And the commander sits down, looks at me and says, so what do you think? And I sat there and I went, uh, man, do I really want to tell him what I really think? Because it was garbage. Yeah. I was like, this is garbage. But I, I didn't know what to do. And so I went, ah, screw it. They'll never invite me back again. They didn't talk to me for three years. So I told them, this is garbage. Here's how I would do it. Blah, blah, blah. This, 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 this. And the guy goes, man, you got some. All right. How do we do this then? And so I kind of laid out how we should do it and blah, blah, blah. So then years to come, um, they still are my friends. And uh, and they've done it. You know, I mean, it's it's great to see some of the things that they've really done in the military for upping not only physical performance, but for me, the biggest thing is mental performance. It used to be psych was way over here. You never talked about spiritual readiness. You never talked about mental health. You never talked about, um, you know, sleep. You never talked about these other things. It was always bigger, faster, stronger. And, um, and it's been fun. Like, so from 2006 to 2010, just seeing that transformation and seeing all these things that are now kind of common in military across like nutritionists and strength coaches and all these things. And, yeah. and seeing the pillars that are based on spiritual readiness and mental readiness and sleep and nutrition along with physical, like that's great. Um, I remember talking to a master chief who he said, Hey, I need you to write a proposal for X, Y, Z. I said, perfect. Here's the three things I want to do. I want to do physical health and performance. I want to do cognitive health and performance. And I want to do socio-emotional health and performance. Because I'm worried about stress levels and anxiety and things like that. And he said, Jimmy, you're great. Stick to physical performance. Do not do any of these other things because nobody cares about that. And now we're, you know, that's all we care about. Look where we are now. Yeah, look where we are now. Post pandemic. That's been really fun um, seeing that. Yeah. Okay. Well, this has been an incredible episode. I mean, doing so many incredible things, just as Aaron said when he started his episode with you. Definitely, I was not the smartest person on this conversation here today. I mean, I learned so much and took so many notes uh, sitting here doing this. I mean, this is incredible. Oh, awesome. And uh, what, end of the day, what do you want your legacy to be? Oh, that's simple. Uh, I want people to know that I was a recovering jerk my entire life. I was trying to overcome just my egocentric piece. And uh, if I could have been a positive, impactful person on somebody else, uh, my motto is one person, one thing each day. Can I help one person with one thing each day? If I could do that for the rest of my life, I'm being pretty happy. And that he enjoyed the journey. Like, hopefully I'm not bringing people down. Sometimes I get upset and get mad and stuff like that. But hopefully they also see that I have, I don't know, I try to have a little fun whenever we're doing something. So yeah. uh, I would say those those uh, things are are what I want people to kind of remember. Like you said, that force multiplier. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, I can't thank you enough for doing this. I want to thank everybody else for tuning in, listening to this incredible episode. I mean, this had so much to cover here. Hopefully uh, y'all got a lot from this as I did. This is definitely something that... I look forward to going back and doing the editing and listening to this episode all over again. But make sure you head over, folks, to Apple Podcast, Spotify, or to our website, theshadowspodcast.com. Leave us a review if you like what we're doing. 
Uh, also helps us spread the word with all those algorithms out there. Let other people hear about the Shadows podcast and make sure that you subscribe and follow us on your preferred podcast platform. Once again, sir, thank you so much. And that will conclude this episode of the Shadows podcast. 